a passage of scripture that I have read once or twice in my life when I've been reading through the Bible. Because quite frankly, the genealogies found in scripture are about as interesting as the book of Numbers. Oddly enough, I'm pretty sure there's genealogies in the book of Numbers. They're not made for interesting reading. This person begot this person who begot this person who begot this person who begot... Great. I'm happy for him. But I think there's something really interesting found in the Gospel of Matthew. You see, most of the time in genealogies, moms aren't included. It's father to son, to son, to son, to son, to son, to son. And in the book of Matthew, there are three women mentioned by name, and a fourth who doesn't get named but is referenced in the genealogy of Jesus. And each of them have their own story that I think is important. And obviously Matthew did, and obviously God did, to the whole of history. It's six quick short verses, and then I'm going to tell you the stories of these four women. And I wrote down the scripture passages there so that you can go and look at them as well later on. Let's read out of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of, oh gosh, Aminadab. Sorry, it's, see, it's on two lines in my Bible, so my brain got confused for a second. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. That's an odd name. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba is mentioned in my Bible. Up there, it says, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Let's take the next 15, 20 minutes and not give any of these four women, quite frankly, the justice that they are due, because we could talk about them for quite a long time. Number one on your note sheets, God has a plan. God has a plan. Did God know that his most favorite creation would turn against him rather quickly? Yes, he did. We mentioned last week, right? He knows everything perfectly. And we're not going to go through all of that again. I'm not going to threaten to punch my sister again like I did last week. It's all right. But the fact of the matter is that God knows everything perfectly. So he knew before he created anything that his most favorite, precious, loved creation, you and I, would turn against him. So he also set a plan in motion. The famous saying, right, if you, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Good news, God had a plan. And while obviously there are a plethora of women involved in this plan, because you can't have a child without one, there are four, like I said, that get mentioned. And all four of them have an interesting tale. They don't fit 
the way that conventional wisdom and tradition want things to fit together. Because God rarely works that way. Because if everything worked exactly the way that we believe it should, he wouldn't get that much glory. So he takes the things, if you read throughout scripture, this is the case. He takes everything that we think and he throws it out the window and does something different. And that's part of the plan. One of my favorite movies. It's one of the best movies ever made, quite frankly. That's not just my opinion. Look on Rotten Tomatoes. It's one of the top ten movies ever made. It's a Batman movie entitled The Dark Knight. And the Joker in it looks at somebody and goes, do I look like a guy with a plan? And I live my life by that motto. Do I look like a guy with a plan? Isn't it great to know that God looks like a man with a plan and he fulfills it, even if we don't think he's got one sometimes? God is never just throwing darts at a board and seeing what sticks. He is always, how many more euphemisms can I fit into this sermon, right? He has always got a plan, and it will come to pass. So let's take a look at these four women that are mentioned here in the genealogy. The first one is Tamar. You can find her story in Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 through 30. It's an odd tale. See, Tamar was a widow, fairly young widow. And back then, in those days, if there was a young widow, she was supposed to marry the brother of, the, of her husband that had passed away. We have a few times in scripture where that doesn't happen and there is always a price to pay. Why does God do that? So that the widow would be taken care of. Once they get older, they no longer marry and it's the job of the community to take care of her. But when she's younger, she's supposed to remarry the brother of the, of the uh, of the husband. So it doesn't happen. And she goes and it's like, well, I don't have a kid, which was another big thing. You needed a son to take care of you. It's the way the culture was back then. So if you were young and didn't have a son, you needed to remarry. Well, the person didn't want to remarry her. She's childless, let alone sonless. So she hatches a daring plot. Goes and sits by the gate, looking all fine. And prostitutes herself to the man she knows is supposed to marry her. And God blessed the marriage. Well, not marriage, but the act. But she's also smart because he's supposed to pay her. And she goes, he's like, I don't have it right now. And he goes, fine, send me, give me these two um, articles, these two things that are yours. They have your seal on them. Fast forward nine months or so, there is a baby boy that is born, and they are going to stone this woman to death. At which point she pulls out the two things, says, the man who impregnated me owns these things. Here is his seal. Turns out it's this guy. They get married, and they are part of the lineage of the Messiah. Notice, it's not just the husband who gets mentioned, it's the wife. Because the story is not about him. 
It's about her. She prostitutes herself, making it an unclean line that Jesus comes from. This is going to be a common theme throughout. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus was not 100% Jewish, nor was he from a very clean line. I think she gets mentioned because even in today's world, the oldest profession gets looked down upon. Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that prostitution is a good thing. But throughout human history, those women who have either had no choice, who are sex trafficked, or who get into it not fully understanding, because if you talk to any woman that's come out of it, they all talk about those things. Society looks down at them as the lowest of the low. You're just going to give up your body for sex? So back thousands of years ago, because this isn't even close to the timeline of Jesus. This is way back in Genesis where this happens. Before the Exodus and everything, we see Jesus include a, quote, prostitute. Or we see God include a, quote, prostitute in the line of the Messiah. The next woman we see, number two on your note sheets, Rahab. Now, Rahab is probably a little more known than Tamar, because if you've never read, that's not, the story of Tamar is not one you generally will find in Sunday school, right? We talked about the, the nice felt board last week. That's not one we put up there on the felt board. But Rahab, while she might not have made it to the felt board, does get talked about a little bit more, right? So Rahab, of course, is in Jericho. She's a woman from Jericho. And the spies go into Jericho because Jericho is this massive city that God's like, you need to take this city to the Israelites as they're working through the land of Canaan. And so here we have this woman, and she helps the spies, and she hides them. And she is told she will survive, and she will be blessed. What does that mean? Who knows? So they leave. Of course, the angel of the Lord comes to Joshua, and they're like, you got to walk around 13 times, and they do. And the walls fall. Now, here's the interesting thing. It's said that she lives within the walls of the city. That was common back then, that inside some of the walls, like literally inside the wall itself, there would be houses for poor people. You lived on the outskirts of the city. It wasn't that nice. That leaves us with really two major possibilities for how she survived. Either when the wall fell, there was this nice section that just stayed standing. Is God powerful enough to do that? Of course he is. I don't think that's what happened though. Because in archaeology, they have found the ancient city of Jericho. And what they have found there is that Jericho had not one wall, but two that surrounded the city. An outer wall that was mainly for defense, and then an inner wall that had houses and such in it. If you read the account, it says very specifically that after the walls fell, the Israelites went up into the city. 
what they have found in archaeology, the evidence of it, is that when the wall fell, it didn't crumble. It fell in, literally forming a ramp up the second wall into the city. I personally believe Rahab lived in the inner wall. Is that the case? I don't know. It's not a hill to die on or anything like that. It seems to make sense with most of the evidence. We obviously know then that Rahab isn't just left in Jericho. She gets to go with the Israelites, the people she helped. And God gives her the greatest blessing that he could. She is now included in the line of the Messiah. A woman, Tamar was at least a Jew. Rahab is not. Rahab is from Jericho, a pagan-believing city. And we see the line of Jesus is even a little bit more askew than it was before. And yet this woman who stood up and said, I will do the right thing, she gets blessed beyond almost anyone in Scripture because she gets to be part of the line of Jesus. Again, thousands of years before Jesus. The next woman is the one who is probably the most famous. She has a whole book dedicated to her. Number four on your note sheets, Ruth. I know a great many people who Ruth is their favorite character in all of Scripture. It's this gorgeous story, right? This Moabite woman, the land of Israel is in a famine. So they go, some of people go and live in the land of Moab. The Moabites are the sworn enemies of the Jews, just so we're clear. The Jews hated them, despised them. If you read through scripture, you'll see a lot of, quite frankly, racism from Jews against everyone else around them. Moabites included. Ruth is a Moabite woman. And after her husband dies, she comes back. And she's picking in the fields. This, of course, was a thing. Now remember, this is probably on your felt board. You probably did this one on the felt board in Sunday school. So think back to it. It was allowed for widows to go into the fields as they were harvesting and pick up anything that was dropped. Okay? That was put in place again to help feed and take care of widows. You might say, well, pastor, doesn't the law apply to her just as it did to Tamar? One, she's a Moabite, not a Jew. Two, no Jewish man in his right mind would ever marry a Moabite woman. How dare he? Wouldn't even think of it. So she's threshing, threshing or, uh, in this young man's field. Young man, according to them, Boaz was probably about in his 40s by this time, just so we're clear. And he sees her, and he takes a liking. So they leave some extra on the ground. She goes home, tells her, her mother-in-law about it all, and she's like, that's Ruth, I'm related to him. He has to marry you by the law. He has to do it. So she goes and lays at his feet, uncovers his feet. For those of you that have ever slept before, so I hope all of you, I can't stand it when my feet are cold when I'm trying to sleep. So she wakes him up by doing this. And 
pretty much is just offering herself. She's like, hey, you have to marry me, so here I am. And Boaz is an incredible man of God who knows the law, who likes this girl anyway, and he does the right thing. Of course, I'm shortening this story quite a bit. Go read the book of Ruth. It's an incredible tale of God's provision, of having faith in God, and how God takes care of you throughout hardship. It's this beautiful story. And Ruth gets to be in the line of Jesus, a Moabite woman who shows faith in God, right? What's one of the most famous parts of that entire book? Your God will be my God. She puts everything behind her to follow after him. And he blesses her for it. And she gets to be right in the line of not only Jesus, but King David, and right close to him too. Speaking of King David, number five on your note sheet, Bathsheba. What a tale we have here. You might have heard this one in Sunday school, but I highly doubt it was on your felt board because it's a tale of murder and sex. They usually don't put that on felt boards for six-year-olds. David is a warrior king, which is why he's not allowed to build the temple in Jerusalem. God wanted unbloodied hands, so Solomon has to do it, right? So David is fighting, well, his army is fighting, and he wants a little break and goes home. That was David's first mistake. He was not where he was supposed to be when he was supposed to be there. He goes up on his roof, and he sees this hot young thing bathing. I'd like to ask you all a question. Men, you don't get to answer this. Women, have you ever been possessed with the desire to go out in broad daylight, strip naked, and bathe in full view of the king's palace? I didn't think so. David gets a lot of flack for what he did and does, and he should. But the fact of the matter is that Bathsheba is not that great a person either. If I may use some language, she's a bit of a whore. And so she's up there bathing, knowing that people will see her, wanting to flaunt herself off. And who sees her but the king of the whole nation? And the king of the whole nation has a problem. Go get me that one. I want to have fun with her. So he has his fun, sends her on her way. She comes back to him and says, I'm pregnant, it's yours, because my husband Uriah is one of your mighty fighting men, one of his best friends. That's his wife that he just had sex with and impregnated. So he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to come clean, I'm just going to. Bring him home, get him all drunk, and tell him to go home. The best laid evil plans can be thwarted by a godly man. Because Uriah says, no, all of my men are out on the front line. And he sleeps at the door of the palace. 
doesn't go home to see his wife. And when David finds out about this, he starts freaking out and sees one only, only one option left. Kill one of his best friends and best soldiers. Sends the army in, has everybody pull back. Uriah is killed pretty quickly. Fast forward, the baby that David and Bathsheba have there dies. So he has another child with her, Solomon. And from Solomon's line comes Jesus. You see, David was promised that his line would be the line that the Messiah comes from. God kept his promise. But David caused a lot of heartache in it. Bathsheba's mentioned, I think, because she kind of forced God's hand. How? Not that you can ever force God's hand. But she did make David promise that Solomon would be king. Solomon was not the oldest male. He wasn't David's firstborn son. Yet he gets to be king. Why? Because Bathsheba nagged him hard enough. That's what happened. Four women, all of them with stories that are not the conventional one you would think would be the line of the Messiah. You would think the Messiah of the Jews and of the rest of the world would come from a Jewish line. Would be pure-blooded Jew, if you will. Would come from nobody in his family that, I mean, everybody sins, but no real bad stuff in his family. So let's recap what happens in the line of Jesus. He has a prostitute. He has a woman from Jericho. He has a Moabite. And he has a horrible woman. Read everywhere that talks about Bathsheba in Scripture. She was not a good woman. And from that line comes Jesus. So let's wrap it up. Number six and finally, God uses. Here's why I believe all four of these women were included, named in the genealogy of Jesus. We often think that our mistakes take us out of God's plans. Not that all these are mistakes by any means, but they're things that we, the things we do or say or that happen, we go, God can't use us anymore. God has a plan. There is nothing that you or I could do that will stop that. And here's the incredible part. God's plan includes you. No matter where you fall. Now, sorry, you won't be in the line of the Messiah. It's already happened. Jesus didn't have any children. The line ended with him. But God's plan wants to use you. Does he need you? No. He didn't need any of them either. He wants to use you. Make no mistake, if you say, no, God, I'm not doing that, he will have somebody else do it. You can't stop the plan of God by saying, no, I'm not going to do it. He'll just take you out and put another cog in. But the God 
of the universe, creator, sustainer, says, I have a plan, and I want you to be an integral part of it. Yeah, you won't get written about in Scripture. The odds are we won't sing songs and tell stories about you. The odds are you won't be somebody like David Jeremiah or somebody like that who is, who is so big. You're right. But maybe he's asking you to be the Sunday school teacher of Jeremiah. Who presented Christ to a young boy who got saved and then led thousands of other people to Christ. Maybe he's asking you to play that small part that is integral to it. And you and I look at it and we go, God, I'm useless. I'm broken. I have pain. I have heartache. I have this and this. God, I'm a sinner. And he looks at it all and says, yes, you are. Yes, you do. I don't care. I want you. Church, you're wanted this morning. And God wants to use you. If he can use a woman who takes the matters into her own hands and prostitutes herself. If he can use a woman from Jericho who just decided to do the right thing, putting her own life at risk. A woman from the most hated land of Moab or a vile woman named Bathsheba, a seductress and a tempter, he can use you. He can use me. And he wants to, and he will. You just have to stop telling him he can't. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning. I want to thank you that you included these women in this story, in the, in the genealogy of Jesus, to point to the fact that the line of Jesus wasn't perfect, to point to the fact that you use us. We are warriors in your hand. Father, I ask that you would impress upon our hearts that you, you want us. Because so often we don't feel wanted. So often we feel alone. So often we feel useless. And yet you, who is greater than anyone or anything else, say, I don't care who else wants you. I want you. Let us feel that. And then, Father, let us say, okay. Help us not to be like Moses who gives every excuse not to go. Help us to be a little bit more like Rahab or Ruth who know who we are yet do the right thing anyway. Father, we praise you. It's in the name of your son we pray, amen.